if you would like, today is the last day we will sing that song for a while. And if you want a copy of that, just go ahead and take that. That's a song that's been an encouragement to me. Of course, it's a psalm, so you're actually singing the words of a psalm that I hope has been an encouragement and a help to you. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Before we get into the message, I did want to mention, and uh, Brother Tim may have mentioned this uh, previously, but we are um, working on preparing the budget for next fiscal year. And so I appreciate your prayers about that. Uh, A number of years ago, we altered our schedule to have our annual meeting in April. And uh, so as we prepare the budget, try to get it done by the end of February, according to the Constitution, that's what. And uh, we had, I think it was stated that way because we'd had meetings earlier on in the past. And I just want to let you know, uh, Brother Tim mentioned the Constitution today and the decision we had to make this week about a furnace. We're also trying to give weight to anything, uh, certainly the Constitution directs about our church life. Uh, We may be, due to sickness and uh, some other challenges a little bit later and when we actually get the budget finalized, but I wanted to let you know we're working on it and uh, appreciate your prayers for us. Uh, needs to be prepared, certainly, as uh, it's presented as a part of the annual meeting notes, which are coming up um, sometime in April, and then we'll have our annual meeting uh, later in April. So just wanted to make you aware and ask you to pray and uh, ask the Lord to give us direction as we set uh, some plans for the new year. I want to begin in verse 17 in this sermon that Peter is preaching to those who had come to the temple at the hour of prayer. They saw this lame man healed miraculously, and Peter gives explanation as to how that has taken place in the name of Jesus, who is the servant of the Lord, the holy and righteous one whom they had betrayed or delivered over to Pilate and had him crucified but he had risen. Peter says in verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, some translations have for Moses said, Peter's giving a reason here, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant servant, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I think as you look through this sermon and you pay attention to the references to God and to Jesus, you'll see this is a sermon that is filled with Christ. And those are the best kinds of sermons, sermons that are filled with Christ. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Peter calls the one triune God, the God of our fathers, he calls him. He says he has glorified his servant, Jesus. His name is Jesus, Jehovah saves. He is the servant of the Lord. Remember that title that's used back in verse 13, 
And again, at the end in verse 26 is a word that has the idea of a, a son. It could be a, a boy in a house, but as it's used in the Old Testament, it is the translation of that word that's used repeatedly in Isaiah that foretells the coming of the suffering servant. And so Jesus is certainly the Son of God, not trying to diminish that at all, but he is the servant of the Lord. He is also the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is the author of life. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet like Moses. He is the one through whom God would bring blessing to the earth. This sermon is filled with Christ. It's filled with hope. There are promises, promises of forgiveness of sins, times of refreshing, a promise of the restoration of all things. And this is just, though it's a short portion of the book of Acts, there's so much here, dense, but so many things to say about the Lord and about God and his purposes. We've come to a portion of Peter's sermon in verse 20, where he speaks of the return of Jesus. He's called for repentance, and he said that when repentance comes, of course, forgiveness comes. And in addition to forgiveness, times of refreshing. And in addition to that, verse 20, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. So Peter here is foretelling the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ, which would be accompanied by, notice verse 21, the period or periods or the times, that word could also be translated, of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So you could expect, based on what Peter is saying, to go back to see what the prophets said and see that they foretold the restoration of all things. Now, I'm not going to be extensive or try to in any way uh, elaborate on all that could be said about that, because the prophets certainly spoke about it in detail and in lengthy portions. But just listen to Isaiah. Isaiah, who prophesied at a time where there was just a remnant of God's people, a remnant that would believe many of the people in Isaiah's day did not believe in the Lord or trust in the Lord, but God was giving them hope that he was going to bring restoration. He says in Isaiah 44, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So although Isaiah prophesied at a time where he himself was longing for something to take place along these lines, he had to minister to people who, as he preached to them, as he proclaimed God's word to them, they got harder. They did not listen. Or if they did listen, it did not profit them. They did not mix the word of God with faith. And God told Isaiah he was going to have that kind of ministry. And Isaiah, when he heard what the Lord told him, he said, how long? And the Lord gave him really that promise of a remnant, that there would be a remnant. But many of the people hearing God's word during his day would reject it. Have you ever read Ezekiel? You know, Ezekiel is one of those prophets. It's just fascinating to read about his life and ministry. He did some strange things, really strange things. 
at the command of God as a sign to the people. Why did he do such strange things? Because it took that to get the people's attention. He actually made Ezekiel with, as he said, a forehead like a flint, a strong prophet to testify to a people whose hearts were hard, who would not listen. But God's purpose was unstoppable. And while he confronted the sins of the people, he also said to them many things about what was going to take place in the future that was for their hope. He said in Ezekiel 35, Therefore thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one making them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gather them again to their own land. I will leave none of them there any longer. And what a precious promise, the end of this message of hope. He says, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. That restoration of their fortunes would be accompanied by the pouring out of his spirit, the working in their hearts, so that there was a a God among them and a willing people. Of course, they'd have to come to the place where they repented. Zechariah said, speaking of this same time, he says, God is speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. A little bit later in Zechariah, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. The implication is there would be cleansing. There would be a restoration of the people. And God would be among them. But they could anticipate that time by repenting now, Peter's talking about in anticipation of that wonderful restoration, repent now. The promise is for the forgiveness of sins, verse 19, if they would repent. The promise is times of refreshing that may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, as I interpreted that last week, I'm believe that's different from what he's talking about in verses 20 and 21, where God From time to time, as people repent, there is a time of refreshing. God is sovereign of that time, and he arranges things in such a way that there's relief, there's rest, because many repent. But it's not yet that time of restoration, but it anticipates it. The final point that Peter is making here in his sermon is that Christ is coming again. Notice verse 20, and that, repent and return so that your sins might be wiped away, so that times of refreshings may come, and that, verse 20, he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Peter has already testified that Christ has died, been crucified, he has risen from the dead. Here, he reminds of the ascension in the next verse, but prior to mentioning that place of Christ now, he boldly asserts that Jesus, again, is the Messiah that God appointed. So Peter, in his proclamation of Jesus, certainly on the day of Pentecost, proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. 
Jesus as mankind's universal king. Specifically the one that the prophets testified to, that the Jews were looking for, but they did not really fully understand the necessity of his suffering. Peter's already made reference to the suffering of Christ in verse 18. But here, again, he asserts, and notice he's he's said it back in verse 18, that his Christ would suffer, but now, and that he may send Jesus, verse 20, the Christ appointed for you. This is an unmistakable declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a bold assertion to many, many people right in the temple. He's already preached the crucifixion, the resurrection. Again, drew attention to the suffering. Now, boldly asserting Jesus was handpicked by God to be the Messiah for this nation, certainly for the world. The word that Peter uses here in verse 20, the Christ appointed has that idea of being either hand-picked or chosen especially for the task. The word is used to describe Paul's selection by God to be an apostle or to know the will of God for his life. Paul also was hand-picked, but Christ is hand-picked. Jesus is hand-picked to be the Messiah. What does that mean, that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, as you think about that term Messiah or that term Christ, it simply means anointed one. Anointed one. Anointing was a process of taking oil, usually by a prophet in the Old Testament, and pouring it on the head of another who was selected for some kind of task. It could be a prophet. It could be a priest. Most oftentimes, you see it in connection with a king. David was anointed. Saul was anointed. Other kings were anointed for their task. This is the anointed one. One confession faith asks the question, why is he called Christ that is anointed? And I think this is a helpful answer. This is the Heidelberg Confession. It says, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in that salvation he has purchased for us. You notice that confession draws attention to the fact that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. That's really the picture, the biblical picture of who Jesus is, of what he would do. He's the prophet who speaks God's word to the people. You can see that even in Peter's sermon here, that he draws attention to Christ being the prophet. He is the priest, read the book of Hebrews, as the one who offers a sacrifice to God. The offering, in Jesus' case, was the offering of himself, a perfect sacrifice. And of course, he's also king. In fact, you could say, if you read through this sermon or other sermons, why did they conclude later on in the book of Acts that the apostles were preaching another king, Jesus? Because that's what Messiah means. Messiah refers to the anointed one. And yes, prophet, and yes, priest, but also king. So what he's calling the Jews here to is to recognize that this is their king, the king that they really didn't want to admit, even as Pilate put the title up on the cross, they said, don't put that, put that he said that, but don't put that. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. 
Now, there are many, many people on this day who had not yet accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They had not repented. They had not turned from their unbelief, and Peter has charged them with guilt for delivering Jesus over, for disowning Jesus, for crucifying the Prince of Life. But now he's calling them to repentance, and there's still hope that though they have crucified him, he has risen again, and he's also coming again. So you might think, if you're a Jew and you realize you crucified your king, that you've missed out. Peter's saying, here is God's plan. You have not missed out, but you must repent or you will miss out. You won't be any part of his kingdom if you don't turn from your sins, because he is coming again. That's what he says in verse 20, that he, speaking of the Father, the Lord, that he may send Jesus. And there's a time coming when the Father in heaven is going to send Jesus, and he's going to come to this earth. Jesus is coming again. That's his message on this day. The message of the second coming of Christ was preached even as Jesus is ascending into heaven by the angels who were there that day in in Acts chapter 1. And that is true whether you believe it or not, whether you would agree with it or or not. Truth is truth not because you believe it, but because it's truth. We live in a day and at a time where people tend to center what they believe is the truth in themselves, and they think that they are the arbiters of truth. They're the ones who decide the truth. The truth is the truth. It's not decided by you or me. It's decided by God, what he determines. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Peter here is declaring the truth that Jesus is coming again. He's calling them to repent because he is the Messiah. And if they do not repent, they're going to miss out on something amazing. Something truly amazing. Those times of restoration or that period of restoration. But you notice in verse 21, before he mentions that period of restoration, he refers to where Christ is right now as he's preaching the gospel. And we would say right now because he hasn't come. Jesus is still, as it says there in verse 21, in heaven, and it says, whom heaven must receive. So not only is he boldly asserting that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also testifying to the presence of the living Christ in heaven. He's testifying to the living Christ in heaven. He has risen from the dead, but he says heaven must receive him. This is a different way of thinking about the ascension. And I want to ask you to turn, if you would, back to Luke chapter 24 for just a moment. Luke records the ascension twice, once to end his gospel, I think to bring it to a fitting conclusion to the reader. Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been teaching his disciples in his resurrection body. Verse 50, it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Okay, there's some details here that Luke includes that he doesn't include in the book of Acts, but these are not contradictory accounts, they're complementary. But notice the wording there, verse 51. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. You can imagine Jesus with his hands raised, blessing his people, entering into heaven in that way. But how did he enter? It says he was carried. He was carried. Look over at Acts chapter 1. Verse 9. 
after he had said these things, he was lifted up. This is Acts 1.9. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Okay, so I say what Peter says in Acts chapter 3 is a little bit different because it says whom heaven must receive. You realize that heaven received Christ? That, that God the Father took him up? It doesn't say Jesus went up as if he went of his own accord. He could do that. But the idea of him being taken up or received is the idea of God's purpose, but also heaven's true welcome to Jesus. This is a demonstration of God's reception of Jesus. He is taken up into heaven. He is carried up. It's a passive idea that Jesus is, he's not that he couldn't do it himself, but that the Father brought him into heaven and certainly welcomed Jesus. And notice what it says. If you turn back to Acts chapter 3, it says, whom heaven must receive. I believe the reason here is because there's a plan. And the plan, of course, was for Jesus to go to heaven, to pour out the Spirit, but not to do nothing there. One person said it this way, heaven holds Jesus at God's side until the day he's revealed in return. He is not passive until the return, however. How do we know he's not passive? Well, we just saw Acts chapter 2, that he pours out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That was the action of Christ who went and asked the Father and having received the Spirit from the Father, then poured out the Spirit in the church and look at what happened on the day of Pentecost. And if we follow through the book of Acts, we could see certainly that it is in his name that this man in this chapter has been healed. To invoke the name of Jesus, to perform a healing in Jesus' name, means you need to have Jesus' agreement and authority. And so, yes, this is something that's taking place with Jesus' authority, that one of his apostles is healing a man who never walked. You read through the book of Acts, and you see Jesus is anything but inactive in heaven. He confronts Paul on the road to Damascus personally. He brings Paul to conversion. He goes and he tells Ananias to go to Paul because Paul is now praying. And Ananias delivers a message to Paul. So in terms of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Christ initiated that and directed the apostle Paul. Here he's directing things at Jerusalem. Yes, we could see from the New Testament that Jesus is interceding for us, but he is anything but inactive in heaven. Read through Revelation. He's sending messages to his churches, and he knows what's taking place in all of his churches. He knows what to commend them for. He knows what they need to repent of. He promises them blessings. And in that very same book, he's now revealing the future to the Apostle John. He's giving John the revelation so that he can then tell these churches. So Jesus is the Messiah. That's boldly asserted. But now there's also testimony to Christ's presence, his living presence in heaven, And what is going to end that time in heaven? Notice verse 21 of Acts chapter 3. It says, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So Jesus is coming again. And as he does, he's going to bring out, and the word period, you might notice in the margin that that literally is plural, It's the periods or the times. So Peter is talking about things, plural, that God is going to do to bring about restoration. What is he going to do? What are some things you might say on God's prophetic, you could say calendar, but we don't know the time of that. We just know that there will be a time of that. So in terms of his plan, what are some things that are that are in succession on his plan? And Peter's not detailing them here. He does 
cite some scripture that point to the presence of Jesus within that plan. But I just want to draw attention to to something. I, I think as you think about that time of restoration, I read from Ezekiel, I read from Isaiah, I read from Zechariah. They all spoke about that. Turn, if you would, back to Isaiah 34. Just want to fix in our minds some of what God is going to do. We'd be here all day if we looked at all the revelation and scripture regarding what God is going to do. We'd have to look at the book of Revelation itself. But that restoration of all things, part of that restoration, part of the times of that restoration will include the wrath of Almighty God on this earth. In Isaiah 34, there's a picture. You can find other places where it's pictured in Scripture, but there's a picture of the wrath that's coming against this earth because of sin. The call in verse 1 of Isaiah 34 is to all the nations, all the peoples. Look at it with me, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains here and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains will be drenched with their blood and all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I've devoted to destruction. It's a word about Edom. And Edom is typical of a nation that is rebelling against the Lord, certainly mistreating the people of God. We know that God is not only talking about Edom because he mentions all the nations in verse 1. But Edom is typical of those who rebelled against the Lord. And the picture that is given in verse 6 is of a great sacrifice. But the sacrifice has to do with all these nations. The sword of the Lord, verse 6, is filled with blood. It is sated with fat and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a great has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Eden, Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood. Their dust will become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams, that is Edom's streams, will be turned into pitch its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. It will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But who is going to live there? What's that going to look like when God deals with the nations, when God deals with Edom? It's going to look like a desert with all sorts of desert animals. Notice verse 11, pelican, hedgehog will possess it, an owl and raven will dwell in it. He will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles, there's no one there whom they may proclaim king and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities and it will be the haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves and the Hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, everyone with its kind. Why? Because of sin, because of God's judgment upon sinners. He's going to make complete desolation as he deals in wrath upon sinners preparing the way for his kingdom, which in the next chapter is the blooming of a desert. 
verses 16 and 17 basically just say, if you want to see the reality, this is actually God's purpose, that those creatures are there by his lot and his appointment. That place is a desert because it's his will, because it's what's left when sin has filled the land and then God has dealt in wrath. But what following that? Notice verse 1. The wilderness of chapter 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The God of, excuse me, the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. So what is happening to the earth and to certainly Israel as God restores it? God is going to come. The God who has poured out his vengeance and what will happen when he comes? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The lame will leap like a deer? Have you read Acts chapter 3? There's a guy leaping all over the place. This is a picture Peter is giving as he's healed this man, as God has healed him in the name of Jesus. God is giving a picture to the people of what that time of restoration is going to be like. This man who had never walked, leaping like a deer throughout the temple. This is a work of God, a work that precedes, yes, but really foretells what that restoration is going to be like. Look at verse 6, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander on it. This is a picture of the coming restoration. It's a picture of the coming kingdom of God in Christ. No lion, verse 9, will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with shoutful, uh, joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads these verses encouraged me as I was reading them several weeks ago. Look at the last couple of phrases of verse 10. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We think about tears being wiped away. We think about sorrow but even the sigh that comes as a weariness or a frustration with life in this wicked world, those things are going to be gone. There's a restoration coming. We could look at other passages in Isaiah that foretell it, Ezekiel foretold it, Zechariah the prophets foretold a restoration with dramatic changes involving, first of all, the wrath of God, but then the renewing of all things in Christ's kingdom. Not trying to give a timetable because Peter's not. But Christ is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, yes, there will be wrath. There also will be a restoration of all things. And if we had to be more detailed than that, we could look certainly at what he does with the devil for a thousand years. We could see what happens after those thousand years. But the point is, there is coming a restoration. It is the kingdom of Christ when he comes to this world. 
And that's a time that the Jews, as they read through the prophets, as they heard the prophets read, they understood a glorious time. They didn't understand the suffering, but they did understand there was coming a glorious time when this king would reign and things would blossom in the desert and and, and amazing changes over the whole landscape and in their life and in their world and righteousness would reign. Christ would be on the earth, ruling. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 3. That's just one prophetic picture. Peter says that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. I cited Isaiah. I cited Ezekiel. I cited Zechariah, but you could also see Amos and Micah, the minor prophets, the major prophets, the Psalms. But Peter actually begins by citing Moses. And Moses himself, this prophet they revered. Moses talked about this time. Notice the scriptural support for what he has already declared. This is further identifying Jesus, but it is in support of this time of restoration. Notice in verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And based on that prophecy, the Jews really were expecting a prophet. In fact, the Samaritan woman, as she's there at the well with Jesus, said some things about her expectation of the prophet. In fact, they thought of, the Samaritans thought of the Messiah primarily as one who would come and speak the truth and declare things to them. Remember her words to Jesus? I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And remember what she went and said to her town after she heard Jesus talk about her past and who she was and offer that living water. She went to her town after Jesus identified her uh, himself as the Messiah. And she said, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She had even a rudimentary understanding that the Messiah was going to be a prophet. The Jews did as well. John chapter 6 and verse 14, after he performed a sign, a sign of multiplying loaves and fishes, it says that they saw that and they said, their words, this is truly the prophet, capital P, who is to come into the world. They're expecting a prophet, a prophet like Moses. Later, according to Jesus, as they listened to Jesus' teaching and him offering the Spirit to anyone who would believe upon him, they said, this certainly is the prophet. So they recognized him as the prophet. Some did, but not all. And what's happening as Jesus is ministering and as Jesus is doing what he's doing, even the understanding of who the Messiah is and what he would do is slowly dawning. By God's grace being revealed, certainly to his apostles. But I'm just saying that even from the standpoint of the Jews and the Samaritan woman, there was an expectation that the Messiah was a prophet. Notice what Peter says here as he quotes from Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That means that he's going to come from the nation itself. And they're going to give him obedience. He says, to him, you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Now, you can look at that one of two ways. You could look at it as foretelling, right? You shall give heed or the idea of you must give heed. 
Now, in the kingdom, when Christ is reigning and he's also the one true prophet, they will give heed. The people will have the spirit. They will respond to the words of God. They will follow. But that's Peter's proclamation in addition to Moses' words of what this prophet would be like. He'd be a prophet like Moses. To him, you shall give heed to everything he says to you in the time of the restoration. That will be the case. They will give heed to him. They will follow him. They will obey him not only as prophet, but also king. But I want you to notice Peter's warning. Look at verse 23. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, we have to turn back to Deuteronomy 18 to see why Peter would say that. If you would turn back there with me. If you have a Bible that highlights quotations from the Old Testament, that statement is not highlighted with capital letters. When it says it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So if you look at uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's where Moses said it in the first place. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me, uh, excuse me, let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Okay, so this is God promising that he's going to be one from among them, which, of course, Jesus was. Born of a virgin, yes, but born in the line of David, legally the son of David, but virgin born, born of Mary, was also of the household of David. God's words were going to be put into his mouth. And how many times in the Gospels do you see Jesus declaring words but giving credit to the Father? He's constantly giving credit to the Father. The words that he's speaking are the words that the Father has given him to speak. That's exactly what he's saying here. Verse 18, end of the verse, he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus did not withhold any of the words of God that he was supposed to speak. He was the perfect prophet. He always did what pleased the Father, including speaking the words that the Father had given him to speak, even when it came to speaking words to people who beat him because of the words that he said. Verse 20 is a warning about false prophets. Look at verse 22. Excuse me, go back to verse 19. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay, that's the verse I wanted to focus on. Verse 19. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, God is saying, if you don't listen, if we interpret it according to Jesus, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this, that when a person rejects the words of Jesus, God the Father pays attention, and he's going to require it of the person. He's going to hold them accountable for refusing to hear the words of the prophet that he sends. He realized if Jesus is speaking the words of the Father then the Father is really speaking to those who are listening to the prophet. And so the Father is holding accountable those who are listening to his words. They're just coming through a mediator. They're coming through Christ. So what does God do when he holds someone to account for his words? When he speaks, even if he speaks through a mediator, 
if God has spoken and someone does not respond rightly to what he has spoken, what does God do? What must he do? He must judge. He must bring consequence. He is God. He cannot be ignored. We are his creatures. And he is our God. He is our king. And so when Peter says, it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, what he's doing, I think this is the best way to take it, is he's that he's just drawing out the implication of that statement, I will require it of him. I'm going to require it of the person who refuses to listen to me. There will be consequences. And God doesn't not, he does not issue empty threats, does he? God makes good on his promises. For someone to refuse to obey God, particularly when it comes to his son coming to this world, his very son is rejected and his words are rejected and God the Father sent him in love. What do you think the Father's going to do? And so what's the drawing out of the implication? Well, that soul will be utterly destroyed. That's what Peter says. If you turn back to Acts chapter 3. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. If, If we had to use an Old Testament phrase here, which I think Peter may be alluding to, probably is alluding to, The idea is that person is going to be cut off. They're going to be cut off from the blessings of Israel. They're going to be cut off from any of the good things that God is doing. They're certainly going to be cut off from this time of restoration. They're just going to be cut off. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you see that phrase cut off repeatedly when it comes to obeying God or refusal to obey God, when someone, for instance, refuses to be uh, to, to have their children circumcised, that soul is going to be cut off from God's people. If someone were to make incense, like the incense that was made in the tabernacle that was supposed to be unique and special and the only kind, the, the only one of its kind, if someone decided to make some like that and use it, God said that soul is going to be cut off. You could find other statements. A person who eats blood, Leviticus 17.10. The life of the flesh is in the blood. No one is to eat the blood. If you eat the blood, you're going to be cut off. The idea is certainly removed from God's people, but the implication is God is going to set himself against such a person so that they will be cut off, not only disassociated or banished, but eventually destroyed. They're not going to be a part of the people of God and enjoy the privileges that God has for his people because they're rejecting the very God that his people are supposed to worship. You just look at that statement in the Old Testament and you see the times where it promises that a person is going to be cut off. Does that mean banished from the people? Possibly, but even more than that, God is setting himself against such a person. It's a strong warning here Peter gives. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And he's talking about Jesus. If you don't listen to the words of Jesus, if you don't listen to what he claims about himself, If you don't follow his teaching, if you reject what he says, realize you're not just rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting God himself, and God himself is going to require that of you. There will be accountability. You're going to try to outwit the one who is all wise? You're going to try to fight against the Almighty? 
You're going to spurn the one who sits upon the throne of heaven? This is God. God is not to be trifled with. He's not to be disobeyed. When his son came to the earth and proclaimed the good news found in him, how did this people respond? They rejected him. They had him put to death. God is graciously, graciously promising mercy for those who repent. But he's warning those who would not. Because this is a king to whom they must be subject. He's not only the prophet whose words they must obey because these are really the words of the father given to him to give to them. He's also the king. I think you could see that from the term Messiah. But I want you to look at what else Peter says here. Look at verse 24. Stay with me. Peter says, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward. I like that last phrase, his successors onward. The idea is one after another, one after another. They just they just continue to prophesy. And what do they prophesy? It says they announce these days. What days? The days of the prophet. The days of the king. The days when this king will reign. How do, how, how do I get that from Samuel? Well, Samuel was the one who anointed David. Samuel was the one who actually spoke of the establishment of David's kingdom in the place of Saul's kingdom. Jesus is the son of David. So Samuel was involved in the very establishment of this kingdom, which eventually comes to fruit, not only in Jesus' first coming, but in his second coming, when he comes again to reign, to pour out wrath upon his enemies and to rule on planet earth. This is who Jesus is. And this is why you must repent. You must turn from your sins and put your trust in this prophet like Moses, in this king, in the line of David. But Peter gives even more convincing arguments in the last couple of verses. Look at verse 25. He says, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's making some direct application. When he says they're the sons of the prophets, he's not talking about a literal physical line, but he's talking about the people to whom the prophets came. They are the ones who inherit those prophets' teachings and their their prophecies. They're the sons of the prophets. They're the ones who the prophets came to their nation. They came to them. And so the words that God gave to the prophets to deliver to them, they now belong to this people. But in addition to that, look at verse 25. It says, and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. There's a greater connection that they have than just those words that they received from the prophets. They're actually connected with this covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant that contained as a blessing in your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Ultimately, that blessing came through Christ, who is the seed, who would bless the world. And so what Peter is drawing attention to is that really what God has done in sending Jesus is he's fulfilled the prophecies. He's fulfilling the covenant. And as he fulfills the covenant of bringing blessing to the world, the very first group of people that he's going to bring blessing to is you. It's you. It wasn't other people's. It was this people. Peter emphasizes even further that it's them. In verse 26, he says, for you first. For you first. In fulfillment of the words of the prophets, in fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, God is sending his son so that you might be the first recipient of the blessing. 
Where was the gospel preached first? It was preached in Jerusalem, of all places. And it was preached to these people, the people on the day of Pentecost, and now to these many thousands gathered on this day. God is interested in the salvation of his people. His long wayward and rejecting people, faithless people, sinful people. And God is continuing to call them, to call them, to call them. Even after they've crucified Christ, he's risen again and gone to heaven. He's calling them again. And what's the biggest blessing? Well, you could say there are many blessings to knowing God. Eternal life, joy, forgiveness of sins. But the blessing that he says here in the end of the verse is he sent him to bless you by turning away, by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. What is the blessing that God desires to give to sinners? to those among his own people who had rejected him. The blessing is to turn them away from the wickedness that they practiced that would continue them on the path of destruction and leave them eventually in a place of eternal punishment. He is turning them away. He's calling them to be turned away from evil thoughts from fornications, from thefts, from murders, from adulteries, from deeds of coveting, and the term in the passage is wickedness. It's kind of an umbrella term for lots of different sins. Sins of action, but also sins that have to do with the state of someone's heart where they that this is the state that they're in and they operate on this basis because he goes on to say deceit, Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's what his desire is to turn people away from, not only because of the damage and harm they will do to themselves and others in this life, but because those sins will damn you to hell. If you do not repent. Condemnation. Judgment. God wants to turn you away from that. Now he's talking to the Jews here, but obviously this message is for us. Have you turned from your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus as the Messiah? Have you believed him to be the son of God who died on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven? If you trust him, his very purpose for you is to turn you away from those things, not to give you license to continue to practice them. Jesus is a savior from sin, not just the penalty of sin. He's the savior from the practice of sin, and he can save you. If you come to him by faith, from living in a path of sin that brings destruction, he can forgive you, he can cleanse you, he can change you. You don't have to live that way any longer if you know Christ. Perhaps it is today you don't know Christ. You've never turned from your sins. And I want to just issue really the invitation to you that you could have complete forgiveness of your sins and enjoy fellowship with God now and through eternity, including these times of restoration on earth with King Jesus at the head. Would you turn to him today? I could be talking to someone and you need to turn to him you could turn to him today and find forgiveness of your sins. You could have a relationship with God. Your life would truly change. You'd find that the Lord is good and gracious, rich in mercy. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for sending Jesus to turn us away from our sin, our wickedness. Father, if we have professed Jesus as Lord, believed in him as our Savior, we pray that we might not continue to practice those things which displease you. And if we're just in that pattern of life, help us to question whether or not we truly do know you. For that one or maybe more than one today who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, who's never turned from their sins and put their trust in him, Lord, we pray that even today would be a day of their repentance, their faith in the Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of their sins, and fellowship with you. There's no power in any preacher There's power in your word. There's power in the spirit. It's by the spirit that life comes. And so we rest humbly, dependently upon what you will do. And we ask that you'd accomplish your will. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.